for the month of September on what our liturgy encompasses. Why, why do we do what we do on a Sunday morning? Um, so one of the things that it can be very easy to do on a Sunday is just kind of come and assume everything that's just going on. We can come here and just sort of think, all right, I'm going to come, uh, sing some songs, hear the word. If you've been coming to First City for uh, any extended period of time, you know we take communion every Sunday. And so it could just become very routine and ritualized for us. And so I want us to actually spend a month thinking deeply about what it is we do on Sunday morning for us to see the richness of what's happening and also the, the centrality of the gathered worship. And so there, there are a number of things that, that I'm hopeful and prayerful with this. And, and so as a way to kind of introduce this topic of liturgy and just kind of set the context for, for what we're, we're jumping into. So every Sunday when we come, there is a, a pattern that we follow. So we, we have a call to worship. We, we sing uh, songs both at the beginning and sort of the middle and at the end of the service. Uh, we have either a uh, confession of sin and assurance of pardon or a profession of faith. Uh, we, we do prayer. We do scripture reading. We have a sermon right now, like right now that runs from anywhere from 25 to 45 minutes, trying to keep it on the shorter end for those of you that have short attention spans. Um, and then we, we spend time in communion and then singing some more and then a benediction. And so there's, there's a very purposeful reason we do each of those things. Uh, what we're doing, we're not making up these things as we go along. Uh, we're, we're trying to root ourselves in Christian tradition and history. And so these liturgical forms, the things that we do on a Sunday morning, trace back over 1,500 years. The church has been doing these things in some shape or form for most of the 2,000 years since Christ walked this earth. And so we're trying to ground ourselves in history. We want to have a depth to what we do and not have the sense of, hey, let's just make things up as we go along. But no, what are... What are the things that connect us to a deep tradition and a deep history? But it's not just tradition. The best tradition follows the word of God. And so these things are not just some man-made inventions that 1,500 years ago, 1,600 years ago, Christians thought, hey, this would be cool to do. No, these are drawn from Scripture, and they're things in Scripture that God has promised to work through. And so our hope is not in our invention of the, the different aspects of liturgy. Our hope is in the promise that God has said, hey, I work through these things. I meet you in these things. Here is my means of grace to you. And so when we come together and worship, we do these things not going, hey, I wonder if this will work. Let's try this out and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, we'll throw it out. It's no, God has promised to meet us in these things and use these things. And so we're anchoring ourselves not only in a sense of history and following what the church has done, but we're also anchoring ourselves in the promises of God. And that is very important related to what we do on a Sunday morning. And if you've been here for any extended uh, period of time, maybe you were part of the church plants or you've been around for most of the existence of the church, you've heard us talk about liturgy, you've heard me stand up and talk about some of these things. I mean, one of our core convictions is structure submits to spirit. And that all is wrapped up in the things that we do, whether it be on a Sunday morning or in gospel community or in other ways, are all tied to the fact that the spirit has promised to work through things. And so we've talked about this before, but... For those of you who are newer to First City and maybe newer to this idea of liturgy, um, I want you to understand what, what we're about on Sunday mornings and what we're about as a church. Uh, but for, even for those of you that have been around for a while, we need to anger ourselves in these things. We need to go deep in these things. We need to remind ourselves regularly that these things are not just um, pragmatic issues, but issues of building our faith. 
They're vital to building our faith. And so we, we're going to spend a good month just looking at some of these forms in a more in-depth way. I want us to see that these are essential to our growth as Christians. I don't want us to kind of just see, oh yeah, that's kind of a nice thing that I do on Sundays. But seeing this as, no, this is vital. God has given this to me so that I might grow in my faith and might have a deeper walk with the Lord and be strengthened in my identity in Christ and the mission he has called me to. And for those of you that are here this morning that don't profess faith in Christ, here's what I would love for you to hear. I would love for you to hear and actually see and experience the heart of Christian worship. You're here this morning because maybe someone invited you or you're curious about what, who Jesus is or what the church is about, and, and you've just seen something happen. And I want to, to kind of frame that out and give you an understanding of what this all means and that it's not just empty ritual or people posturing and performing, but it's about encountering the living God who has promised to bless those who put their faith in him. And so I'm jealous for you to, to hear of a glorious God and King who's called people into his presence through Jesus. And I'm jealous that you would meet that Jesus through your time of coming to First City and that you would hear of a God who blesses those who belong to him and loves them and extends grace and mercy. And he extends that grace and mercy to you and calls you out of your sin into life. And so I hope that you hear this heart of worship and understand what it is that we're, we're about on Sunday mornings. So with all that as introduction, here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to kind of set the foundation for our liturgy, the, the thing that gives our liturgy power. And so as we think of liturgy as spiritual formation, two things this morning. One, we are formed by the Spirit, and we are formed by the Word. Formed by the Spirit and formed by the Word. And so before we we take a look at what it means to be formed by the Spirit, I just want us to think for a few minutes about this idea of formation, that we all are being formed one way or another. And the the, the things that we think and believe, the things that we love, our, our thoughts and our emotions and our actions are being shaped by something. And so if I were to observe you, just through your, your daily week and your daily life or over a month or over a year, I would see two things going on at, at work. One, I would see the ways you've already been formed by the way that you behave, by what you say and what you do and, and, and see what you love and what you're interested in and the way you respond to things emotionally. I already see some formation that has taken place over the extended the, the time of your life. But I would also see in your habits and in your actions the things that are ongoing in in shaping you. And so I can get an idea of the direction that you are going to head based on the the habits and the actions that you are already participating in. And so we sort of see the the two sides of this, both the way we've already been shaped and the way that we are being shaped. And here's what's, what's kind of startling about formation. A lot of it happens without us even realizing it. A lot of formation is unintentional and unexpected. And so so here's an example of this. Um, And and some of you may have seen these articles that have come out recently talking about just the effect that the smartphone has had on our culture. So I'm not going to hate on the smartphone. I have a smartphone. We have a complicated relationship. But the way that our smartphone has begun to shape us, and in many ways, without us even understanding that or knowing that. So one of the articles that I read talks about the effect that it's having on teenagers. And 
a couple things that jumped out at me were this. One, teenagers are dating less because the way social interaction has changed through the smartphone. They're getting their driver's license at a later age. That blows my mind. Like when I turned 16, my mom picked me up from school during lunch break. I went over and got that stinking driver's license because it was freedom. And many of you, that was it. Like the moment I turned 16 driving age, I'm getting my driver's license because that meant I could go out with my friends. But because the smartphone has so changed the way we interact socially, it's starting to have these effects on the way teenagers behave. And here's the thing. It's not like teenagers sat around, got together and go, hey, you know what? We should date less. And so let's get a smartphone and we'll date less. Or, you know, really driving's kind of dangerous. And, and you know, the whole global warming and all that, emissions and all that stuff. So, so let's get a smartphone and stop driving as much. No, those things started happening without any sense of expectation or thought or plan. It just began to shape in a certain way. Or how about this? Just even our ability to focus and concentrate for an extended period of time has been shaped because here's what happens with a smartphone. You have your email, you have text, you have all the different apps of communication set up. And, and what, is, what that's like is throughout the day having like 500 times a day someone just saying your name. Like just going, Chris, 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 Chris. How hard is it to focus if someone's standing behind you and just saying your name constantly? Are you going to get anything done? No. And so even that, it's, it's not as if we sat down and thought, boy, I just want to distract myself all day. Or I want my name being spoken over and over and over and over. No. But that, when we, we've taken this instrument and connected all these things to it, we've been formed in this way. So formation... Is, is, an, is unintended often and unexpected. So what that means is, is we need to be paying close attention to what's forming us. Some of it we're, we're completely aware of. Some of it we understand, we're cognizant of. We're doing things on purpose because we want to move a certain direction. But some of it is subtle in those ways. And if we don't stop and sort of take stock of how we're being formed, we can wake up one day and go, whoa, how did I get this way? How did this happen? And when we're thinking about formation, especially spiritual formation, what are the practices, what are the habits, what are the things that most shape you spiritually? When you're thinking of the effects that the the daily rituals and activities that you participate in, the things you give your time to, how are they shaping you spiritually? Because they're shaping you spiritually one way or another. And this is why scripture takes corporate worship so seriously. This is why scripture puts so much emphasis and focus on corporate worship, because corporate worship is about spiritual formation. It is about shaping the people of God in a particular way for a particular mission. And and often for, for those of us, especially if we've been in more the broadly evangelical church, here's how we sort of view worship. We view worship as this idea of just simply expression. So here I am on a Sunday morning, and there God is somewhere up there. I don't know, you know, he's somewhere. I've heard he's present here, but I'm not really sure how that works. And what I do is I express praise. I express worship to him. And so I'm kind of down here, and it's going up. So when I sing, or when I, I read the confession or profession, or when I take communion, Everything's sort of this expressive, like, this is what I believe, this is, I'm, I'm doing this for God, and God's sort of receiving it. Now, that's not entirely wrong, but it misses what is primary in worship. 
Because what it, what it sort of says is that we're the primary actors in worship. But Scripture teaches that it's actually inverse. God is the primary actor in worship. And so worship is less about expression, this sort of top-down expression, and more, or bottom-up expression, excuse me, and more about top-down formation. So let's look at this from Scripture. In Exodus 20:24, the Lord establishes for Israel a foundational understanding for their worship. This is how you are to understand worship, Israel, people of God. This is what Exodus 20, 24 says. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice it on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Now, notice the primacy of action. Yes, the people of God are expressing worship. There's actions here. God has given the people of God, here. there's something for you to do here. But it is God's actions that are primary. He's the one that causes his name to be remembered. The emphasis is on him coming and blessing the people. So it, God is the, the, the energy and the reason for worship. God is the one that prompts worship. He causes his name to be remembered. And then in their expressing, what's actually happening is God is coming and blessing them. And so he is the primary actor in worship. And then our passage from 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 This also speaks of the Lord being the primary actor in worship and where we get to see the Spirit forming us in worship. This is what the passage said, as Steve read, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, there's that word formed, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, some context for this passage. Paul is referencing this account in Israel's history. So Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and he says, God, can I see your glory? And and God says, okay, I'm going to hide you, and I'm going to show you my goodness. That happens, so Moses sees part of God's glory, and it causes his face to shine. And it's so blinding, it's so bright, that when Moses meets with the people of God in corporate worship, they're saying, hey, put a veil over that. We can't behold the glory of God. We can't look at the glory of God on your face. And so, so please put a veil over your face. And what Paul is saying is that, that them asking Moses to put that over their face actually pointed to what was going on in their hearts. They had a veil over their hearts. They couldn't behold the glory of God because their hearts were sinful and hardened. And what Paul is saying, through Jesus Christ, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, that veil has been removed from our hearts and the glory of God has been shown fully through Jesus Christ. And so we look on the glory of God. We don't hide from the glory of God because of Christ. And when we behold the glory of God, it transforms us. It changes us. And this is the work of the Spirit. And what is the context that Paul has in mind where we're going to behold the glory of God and the Spirit is going to transform us, primarily in corporate worship? It's not the only context, but it is the central and primary context by which we're going to behold the glory of God and be transformed. And this is the work of the Spirit, as this passage says. It is the Spirit that is at work to unveil the glory of God and reveal Christ to us. It is the work of the Spirit to transform us from one image of glory to the next. That's growing in godliness. It is the work of the Spirit, praise God, to bring freedom. And this is what the Spirit is doing when we gather as the people of God 
transforming us, forming us. So what this means is is that in our actions, in our worship, what's happening is God is at work to form and shape us. That is what is primary. That is what is happening here is formation. And so the actions of our liturgy are not primarily about us just expressing our devotion to the Lord, as important as that is. I don't want to say that, tell you that that's not part of it. That is part of it. But what's happening more importantly than that and underneath that is that the actions of our liturgy, in the actions of our liturgy, the Spirit is shaping us as the people of God, what we think, what we believe, what we love, what we do. And so we can put it this way. If liturgy is about spiritual formation, at the heart and foundation of our liturgy is being formed by the Spirit of God to be the people of God for the mission of God. That's what Sunday morning, that's what when we gather, that's what this is about, is so that the Spirit would transform us and conform us, reveal Christ to us. And all that you're doing on a Sunday morning in the call to worship, in the singing, sitting under the preaching, the prayer, confessing, professing, receiving the Lord's Supper, the Spirit is at work to reveal the glory of Christ and to transform you. And what is the primary means or tool that the Spirit uses to reveal the glory of Christ and form us? So if, the, if we're formed by the Spirit, what is the primary means here on Sunday morning that the Spirit uses to form us? The Word of God. So we're formed by the Spirit of God and we're formed by the Word of God. And this is the, the incredible truth about Reality, really, is that words have shaping power. They shape our thoughts. They shape our emotions. They shape our beliefs. They shape what we love. They shape how we act and behave. Words are powerful in their shape and their ability to shape. So you can think of this positive or negatively. Growing up, if you had somebody speaking words of encouragement to you and speaking life to you, speaking hope and blessing over you, That is going to have a powerful shaping effect on you. Now, it doesn't guarantee anything because we also have to, our hearts are are in play here, but it is is going to have an effect on you that is moving you towards something positive and beautiful and good. But if we were to say, growing up, people spoke words of harm and hurt and abuse and discouragement over you, that's going to affect and shape you. Every day, and you walk through your world, you walk through your life, you're hearing words and messages that are trying to shape you one way or another. The question is, are you paying attention? Are you, are you aware of how you're being shaped? Or is it like the smartphone and just sort of shaping you and you're not even aware of what's happening? Words are powerful in shaping because they reflect the way God has ordered his world and reflect us as being in the image of God because God created through his word. He spoke the universe into existence through his words. God's words have shaping and creative power. And those of us made in the image of God, we don't have the same kind of shaping power, but we have a type of shaping power. And so words are powerful in how they shape. And so how should we think about the way the word is shaping us in worship through our liturgy? Well, I want to I borrow a couple ideas from James K. Smith. He talks about how the word in worship both restores us and characterizes us. So the word restores us means that it gives us 
a better narrative. It gives us a better story. Or it reminds us of what is true. So again, you go throughout your day, you watch the news, you watch a movie, you listen to music, you're on social media, whatever it is where you're kind of consuming words, there is a narrative that is being spoken. There is a story that is being told. Whether you believe in God and that story encompasses God, or whether you say, I don't believe in God and I'm an atheist, you still have a story in mind of how this world got here, who you are, what, what makes sense of everything that is going on around you. We're story-formed people. We don't just exist in brutal facts. It's not just this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. It's all these things happened and that's telling a story. And I'm trying to figure out the meaning of that story. So we're all being told a story one way or another. And what James K. Smith points out is that God's word, when we come together in worship, is telling us and reminding us of what is the true story. It's pulling us out of all of those false narratives and reminding us, hey, this is what is true. This is the story that defines reality. And then the word also characterizes us, meaning it gives us an identity. If, if we're story-formed people, if we think of reality in story form, that means we're a character. It means we have a part to play. That means we exist in this story. It means we have an identity in this story. And so what the Word of God does, it comes in and says, here's the story, and this is who you are in that story. This is your identity. And if we have an identity, then it means we have a call. And so it orients us and tells us, hey, living in this world, this is what this means. This is the call on your life. And so God's Word restories us and characterizes us. So what does this look like in our worship, to be restoried and characterized? Well, let's walk through a couple elements of our worship here. First, our call to worship. Eric did a phenomenal job this morning. I loved what he did with that speaking, just greeting everyone in different languages to, to remind us who we are as Christ, in Christ and the, the diversity of the body of Christ. But in the call to worship, God is calling us out of our world and calling us together. And so as Psalm 95, 6 and 7 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. God has spoken to us and said, come, come from your homes, come from your families, come from your jobs, come from your neighborhoods, come together as the people of God and worship. Now, when I was a kid, I would say probably the number one way that I got in trouble more than any other is I did not come home when I was called. Whether, whether it was I had a set time that I needed to be home, or I was over at a friend's and my mom called and she said, hey, you need to come home, and I didn't. I mean, my mom would hunt me down if I did not come home when I needed to. And, and so here, here's the one way of thinking about that. I could just say I disobeyed my mom, which was true. But what's underneath that call, home? What's, that, what's underneath that call to, to, to come back to your home? It's saying, hey, Chris, you have a greater identity than whatever's going on over there with your friends. You belong here. This is, this is the allegiance with which all things, uh, everything else matters. You're, you're, you belong to this family. So when, when I call you home, I'm reminding you who you are. I'm reminding you where you come from. I'm reminding you, what, orienting, what's your, who's your family? 
I'm reminding you who the proper authority is, your mother, not your friends or anybody else. But, but it's a call. A call home is always to a call to remember your identity. Remember where you belong. Remember who you are. And orient your life around that. Put that in its proper place. And so the call to worship, God is saying, hey, come to me as my people. This is your true identity. I'm calling you home, so to speak, to reorient you around who your identity, what your identity really is, to remind you of the story. And what this also says is that God, as sovereign king, has acted in history in such a way that is worthy of us responding. When God calls, we respond because he is worthy, because he has done something through Jesus Christ that deserves us coming and saying, yes, Lord, we will come and we will worship because you are that glorious. And so in, in, in just that simple little call to worship that we do every Sunday morning is a radical reorienting of your identity and a reminder of who you are and who God is. Or how about in prayer? The Word of God shapes us through prayer as people, one, who know they have access to their God and their King because of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, for help in time of need. So as praying people, the word of God calls us to faith. It shapes us to understand, look, there is more going on than just what we can see. So when, when Mindy and I first moved to the East Coast, um, Mindy was looking for a job, and, and we metro downtown, downtown D.C., so you know, we're two kids, Midwestern kids, small town or smallish towns, and here we are in the big city of D.C., and it's a little overwhelming. And one of the things, when you, when you go to major metropolitan areas, one of the things that, that often jumps out at you is the homeless population. And, and so one time, as, as we're walking, I can't remember if it was either to or from one of Mindy's interviews, and just the stress of that, we need to find a job, we, we saw this guy standing on the street yelling at nothing. And, and it's both startling and, and sad at the same time to see somebody speaking and nobody's there, just talking like, okay, obviously they're not talking to anybody in particular. And so there, there's something, we look at that and we go, that, that's a little odd. And yet... Here we are on Sunday mornings speaking to our God and it's not a two-way conversation in the sense that God audibly responds. And so we, we recognize in one instance that that, that is a sign of, of brokenness mentally, but here we're doing much the same thing in our actions. And so what this, what this says for us is that we see something, we believe something, we understand something that is more than just what we can see. And so it reorients us to, to put our hope and our trust past our circumstances, past what is happening right in front of us, to understand that there is a bigger and truer reality governing all that we can see. And we're trying to connect with that and remind ourselves that is what determines ultimate truth and reality. That is what dictates our lives, not what we can see but the glorious and sovereign God who is there. And so in prayer, we're exercising dependence. We're being shaped as those who depend. But what's also beautiful 
is that the Word of God gives shape to our prayers. It gives us a language of the kingdom. And so the language of this world is going to throw words like performance and power and status and success and conflict and war and oppression and death. Those are the narratives that are going to beat down on our minds and our hearts trying to shape us. But when we go to the Lord in prayer, as Jesus taught us, we're reorienting. We're using different language. We're letting our hearts be shaped by words such as Father, hallowed be your name, kingdom, forgiveness, grace, justice, goodness, beauty. The, the language of the kingdom sinks into our hearts and shapes us through prayer. And what prayer also shows us, as we see in this passage from Hebrews, that we can find grace and help in time of need. Prayer orients us and shapes us as people in an ongoing battle. It reminds us that the battle's not over. The battle is ongoing. And in prayer, we're, we're rooting ourselves in our true hope. And so prayer, in, in many ways, is, is, a, is a call to war, is a strengthening to war. As we step into this world and, and bring the gospel to those who are in darkness, as we encounter evil and fight for justice and gospel renewal in our city, and then preaching in Romans 1.16 and 10.17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. So we sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word to re- be reminded of the story, to be reminded of what is truth, what is reality. Like any great story, there's a lot of subplots. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of things going on. But the best stories have an overarching narrative that controls everything else. And so no matter how much, how much chaos happens within the characters, how much chaos happens with the subplots, the overarching narrative, a good one anyway, stays in control, stays clean, stays true through the whole story. And that's, that's the narrative that we're reminding ourselves the narrative of the gospel, the narrative of a God who has stepped into history to redeem a people, a God who is bringing restoration and redemption, a God who has brought his kingdom to bear in this world. And one day we will experience, those of us who are in Christ, complete and whole freedom and redemption and restoration. And so we come and we remind ourselves of this story. And we remind ourselves who we are in this story and the call that God has given us to go and take the gospel to live under his authority and under, under his righteous rule and reign. And so we sit under the word. And it, it, in these passages from Romans, this is the power of God. The word of God is the power of God for salvation. It's the word of God that Jesus proclaimed to his disciples and said, take this word and proclaim it and I'm going to save people through it. Faith comes when you hear the word of God. There's incredible promise here. That when you read the Word of God, when you hear the Word of God, your faith is being built. And then finally, benediction. The benediction, we do every, every su- Sunday, we end with a benediction. Why do we do this? Is it just, hey, this is a nice way to sort of just close everything, put a little bow on it? No, there's something in this far more than that. In our benediction, we are sent into this world with an identity, a blessing, and a mission. And so the culmination of our worship every Sunday is to be formed and then to be sent. And this is what we saw last week in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
Jesus said, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in worship, we're not formed so that we can create this little holy huddle and retreat from the world. We're formed here to be sent out. What, we have, what happens here shapes us for us to go. It shapes us that we may take the blessing of worship out into our world and proclaim the gospel and to live faithfully as Jesus called us to live. So we are caught up into a greater kingdom on Sunday mornings. But that kingdom is advancing. That kingdom isn't contained here in this Sunday morning. This kingdom is advancing throughout the entire world. And so for us to go every Sunday with a blessing, with an identity, and with a mission, this means we are, we are going with that kingdom that is expanding. We are inviting others in to experience this worship and this formation. And so worship always sends so that it may spread. And so never forget that, that what we're doing here is being formed so that we may be sent. And so the word of God shapes us here so it may send us out to declare the gospel to others. So, in conclusion, let me return to this question. What is shaping, what is forming you? What are the words, what are the narratives that you believe? What are the things that are shaping what you love, what you think, what you believe, what you do? Are you aware of those things? And how are they affecting you spiritually? What, what does spiritual formation look like for you? What are the things that you do on a regular basis to be formed? And then, how do you approach Sundays? If the Spirit of God powerfully works in a distinct way to shape and form us on Sunday mornings as we gather corporately, then that means Sundays are not just some nice spiritual pick-me-up where I come to hear some inspiring message, sing some songs, give some hugs to the people I haven't seen all week, and then go. Yeah, we do all of those things. But it's something so much more profound and deep and meaningful and vital what happens on Sunday mornings. It means that we're getting formation here that we cannot get anywhere else. Look, this is not the only place we're formed as Christians. But it is a primary place that we are formed in a unique way that you cannot get with just you and your Bible or you and gospel community. There's something unique and distinct here that if you miss on Sundays, you're going to miss altogether. Now, this is not to say, hey, you should feel guilty when you miss Sundays. I'm not trying to lay on the guilt here. What I'm trying to say is what happens if, if God has something for you distinct on Sundays? What does that mean for your spiritual formation if you miss? And so church, this is not the exclusive way for formation. The church is certainly more than Sunday mornings, but it is never less and if the promises, if these promises in a call to worship, in prayer, in preaching, in a benediction, and as we're going to see next week in singing and in confession and profession and in the Lord's Supper, if the promises, these promises are ours in Jesus Christ, then let's commit to gather as the church, 
to be formed by the Spirit of God as the people of God for the mission of God. Amen.